physical zendo, but of course also our virtual zendo, which is perhaps even more mysterious uh, how that how that can work, especially in regard to what I'm going to bring up, but it does. So that's good. Um, in this, I've been inspired by a couple of books recently. Um, one is called The Shamanic Bones of Zen by Zenju Earthland Manual. And the other is called Seeing with the Eye of Dhamma, which is um, the talks of a contemporary Thai teacher, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, that have been translated by our old friend Santi Carlo, who some of you have met. And uh, he's been working on this for, for many years. We've been hearing about this book for many years. So. Uh, and, you know, I'm just really going to scratch the surface of both books and more just where I where I'm where I went with it, where I go with what they're bringing up. So um, and they're and they're quite different. In fact, well, I feel like they almost talk to two different parts of me. And maybe those parts have not yet learned how to talk to each other. I don't know. But they're very different in um, what they're bringing up. But as I said, I feel inspired by both of them. Where's the best place to put this? In my sleeve. You can get a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> Once did a skit about that. Um, so, um, Sanju Earthland Manual is uh, becoming quite a renowned 
teacher and writer, and she's also very close to us. She uh, got her, did her training and study at San Francisco Zen Center. She sat here many times, and uh, she was transmitted by Blanche Hartman, who was transmitted by our old abbot, Sojin. So she's kind of a Dharma aunt, Dharma cousin, perhaps. Um, and um, I'm finding that uh, just reading her book, I find myself to feel more located is the word that keeps coming up in space and time, like more settled and located in the broad reach of human history, you know, um, and that's very settling feeling. She's kind of looking past the, the clothes and skin, I guess, of um, religion, you know, organized religion and hierarchy, patriarchy and culture and and nationalism even and um, going to the bones of um, her bones. So the word shaman, quote from her, the word shaman has been lifted from the Tungus language of ancient Mongolia. The root of the word shaman originates from shaman, I, I don't know how to pronounce the word that she typed in there, but which means to know. To know is not an intellectual process. It is to know the spirit of things, of people, of life, the nature of the unseen world behind our physical world. So I, as I understand uh, what she's saying, the common bond between you know, these ancient shamanic and indigenous practices and our Zen practice is kind of using the forms of the world, which includes our bodies and nature, using the forms of the world to touch something deeper, something beyond what the scene. Um, and and he and 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 through that healing, through that transformation, and you know a kind, you know, wisdoms that have been developed by thousands of years of humans working to develop methodologies to connect us to these deeper truths. We could even say, you know, healing using, you know, healing using conditions to touch the unconditioned, because as we know, we, the only thing we have to touch the unconditioned is conditions the only way. And uh, Buddha Dasa is also pointing to bones in a way. Uh, uh, his bones are original teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha before, uh, you know, before, you know, separate from culture and modernization, he, you know, sort of modern culture, as well as what he's talking about, Thai culture. Um, and so I'm just gonna, he's gonna come up, he's gonna come into this later, but for right now, I'm focusing on Zenju's uh, first practice for creating this connection um, is to create a sanctuary. 
a sanctuary, a sacred space. Um, and I'm and and I'm going to mention her a few other practices that I think would make really interesting conversations for us that she gets into in the book, but I'm not going to go into them, which include, you know, chanting and drumming honoring the ancestors and making offerings, which are all things that we do every day in our practice. Um, so the first step in making this connection to the deeper world is to have, create a sacred space where that can be encouraged and nurtured. And uh, for example, our Zendo, um, it was, I was pleased and amused I guess it was a year ago sometime when we started to look at opening again opening this physical zendo and we and we tried to figure out what kind of uh, remodel that we needed to do to make it safe uh, for for the for the pandemic era and you know we had the we had some consultants and hvac i learned what hvac stands for and um do you want to know what HVAC stands for? Or do you all know already? Heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Um, and it seemed like we were gonna have to spend like maybe $20,000, maybe $40,000, maybe $60,000 was the most commonly mentioned number. And then, you know, more consultants, different consultants. And finally, in the end, we decided to start with two $400 air filters and two air quality monitors. And what we've learned, we've been open now three, four, five months, something, is that we have excellent air quality here. <laughs> it often says that on the monitor. Congratulations, you have achieved excellent air quality. And, uh, you know, old buildings, it turns out, we learned some stuff. Old buildings um, exchange air more easily than newer buildings. And uh, we have this high ceiling and we have three windows on three walls. And so, so um, I think I somehow feel our old abbot who basically designed this space, you know, he's still here supporting us with his vision, you know, and his, um, even though he wasn't thinking about these issues, HVAC issues at all, somehow it works, you know, what he created, what he, what everybody created at the time, not him alone, but a lot of people, but it's a safe airspace. So, um, how, so that's one way that we make a sanctuary here or a sacred space. We also, as we know, keep it really clean and um, we take care of it. We tend it in many ways. Um, we have only certain activities we do here. We limit it to certain activities, like so we don't have parties with past hors d'oeuvres. I tried to think of all the things we don't do here. <laughs> Messy art projects. We don't bring the power tools in. It's not a workshop. We keep it for a couple main activities keep it for being together for sure being together being together mostly in stillness and silence and we um 
we let it be known that we come together for the sake of all beings. I think that really contributes to a sense of safety because we come together with our deepest shared values. We come together for the benefit of all beings. And that already is taking us to some kind of deeper, deeper space. And the, and the function of having this sanctuary is to, um, oh wait, first I was gonna read another passage from Sanjay, sorry. Sanctuary space is important to the success of rituals and ceremonies. I, that's something that could be interrogated, the idea of success. But anyway, um, the design and texture of the sanctuary play a role in protection from interference with sacred activities. The sanctuary must provide calm and tranquility, which is the reason many rituals and ceremonies are held in remote places in nature. Upon entering the sanctuary, a participant's shoulders should fall and a naturally inward gaze should come upon them. Don't, don't worry if that didn't happen for you. It's not, this is not a thing we're sorting between the people who it's working for and the people who aren't. It's not about that. But it is, um, oh, I'm supposed to hold this thing up nice somehow, or you can. Or no, something. no, you're, what? no you, don't. you don't need to. You seem to remember somebody. Anyway, um, so to paraphrase what she's saying, or to put it in my own words, I would say that a function is for us to let down our guard, to come into the space and be able to let down our guard and drop into a different perspective. Is what I've been thinking about it as, about the same things, our feelings, our thoughts, but from a different perspective. And this is something that our minds have the capacity to do. And if given the opportunity and the encouragement, it can happen quite naturally. Just we drop down and find this deeper connection, which is again, something humans have been doing for thousands of years. Um, so just to say a few words about what we're dropping down from our usual way of operating, and I don't, I'm not denigrating it, but we have a, a lot of concern with, um, you know, figuring stuff out, what we're going to do, what we're going to say, just the ordinary actions of our life, activities of our life. And, you know, I think to the extent that we're driven, you know, I, I think our DNA is, is, which is also from our ancestors, you know, is sort of, we have all living beings, all life has to do a couple things to survive. We have to find nourishment and we have to ward off threats. Those things have to happen. That's our survival. We can't do this practice or do these ceremonies or have this without that. So um, I think being more aware of how that is operating, you know, we're kind of always looking for nourishment and always 
trying to ward off the things we're afraid of. Not always, but that's an activity of this first kind of, this kind of, I'm sort of using it as upper and lower, but it's not really that, that I have to do something. Um, so, um, and you could even say, you know, our desires and our fears and confusion. I sort of, so in the process of working on this talk and reading these books, I sort of rewrote the three poisons of Zen, of Buddhism, you know, which are greed, hatred, and delusion, to desires, fears, and confusion. More, less judgy, more ordinary. And I don't mean to, um, I mean, you, if I watch the news, I see plenty of evidence of greed, hatred, and delusion. Man, maybe that's just my way of looking. Maybe I need to look through that to see the needs and fears, you know, beneath it. Maybe that would be constructive. But for most of us, if we found our way to this room and we want, we've already care about the suffering of all living beings, it's really more our desires and our fears. And confusion to me is confusion about what really will meet our needs and what really is a threat, you know? What is the truth of that? So, um, you know, it takes something special, it takes something unusual to to set that aside or drop down out of that um, and um, allow us to find this other perspective. And, you know, it can start with a perspective on those very things. It, how, we, how we deal with our confusion is to get to know ourselves more deeply. Um, and doing that not from and the, our evaluating mind, like, is this going to be good for me or bad for me, but actually from this other perspective, what we might call big mind or big heart. From the perspective of big mind and heart, we can hold what's happening and we can hold it with friendliness and appreciation, respect and uh, curiosity, all the things that bring some ease and spaciousness to our mind states. Um, a couple um, things from Buddha Dasa now, uh, there's a couple things I really like uh, that he brings up. One is um, he's forgot to look down at you guys, sorry. Here we are. <laughs> I'm talking to you too. Um, there's this thing. So he's talking about the, there's a, there's this very old formulation of the attributes of Dharma. It's like you chant it in the monastery. You appreciate, you remember the attributes of Dharma. And that's a whole other talk. I'm not going to go into all of them, but one of them is in Pali, Sanditiko, which basically means to be clearly seen and realized for oneself. That's an attribute of the Dharma. The Dharma is something that has to be realized 
through our own bodies and minds. And he goes on to say this thing about the ABCs of Buddhism. So just uh, the ABCs of Buddhism are basically like our five senses, six, six senses, five sense, five physical senses and mind. In Buddhism, mind is framed as like another sense organ. So just like eyes have forms and colors, mind has thoughts and feelings. And to understand that process of our experience, of our own experience, deeper and deeper and deeper is um, what he's calling the ABCs of Buddhism. And he says, just like you can read all of literature, if you know the alphabet, you can understand all of Buddha's teachings if you understand this. And I would say this and other people, we need to understand each other too, because there's the ways we're the same and then there's the ways we're different and we have to understand both. But it starts here. Um, and um, then it can go deeper too, can go even deeper to um, something, a connection with everything that, that I can't even describe, but just to know, know the interdependence, know the interconnectivity of everything, to know it in our bodies. Um, I had the occasion to, uh, I was at Green Gulch a couple weeks ago and I was co-leading a workshop and I had the opportunity to um, do Zazen instruction in um, during Zazen. Um, you know, usually when we do Zazen instruction here, we kind of sit in a circle and we have question and answer and it's quite informal, but another way to do it is to just once everybody starts sitting, you just quietly give Zazen instruction including for people who aren't familiar with it and um, it's it can be a nice way to do it and then so i did that for the first few minutes and then we we moved to the silence of you know silent part of the period and i noticed that i was like i of course had some mental activity going about how well i'd done that the instruction and uh kept coming back to it a little bit you know and, you know, it makes sense because, of course, especially if there's new people, it's good to care. <laughs> we want them to have a good, a good experience. We want, you know, do it well for their sake um, so that they aren't turned off of Zen practice or something, you know. But also, of course, the self-concern about how well I did and all that. Um, so then I had a new thought, which was, wow, at least I can't mess this up. At least I can't mess up the silence. At least I can, and which is not how I necessarily think typically. I mean, I do think there's a right, I still think after all these years, kind of, that there's a right way to do Zazen. And there's a time when I'm doing it and time when I've veered off and stuff. But it was a great thought. And you know, Sojin Roshi always used to say that Zazen is non-karmic activity. And I never really understood quite what he meant. But, you know, we create karma when we talk or move, you know, our, 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 our karma is created through our body, speech and, and, and mind, but mind leading to action, you know, intention leading to action or leading to speech. So, you know, just 
how about just giving yourself a break, giving myself a break for the 40 minutes? Like, what a relief. I can't create any karma. And, you know, again, I don't think that's absolute because I can think of some ways that you could probably create karma during a period of zazen. But still, I think this, you know, at least I can't mess this up, you know, and I won't have to go through a mental process afterward about how well I did it, you know. It's just being here. It's just being together here now to the extent that we are, you know, which is 100% objectively, we're all here all the time, completely present. And then we have this thing we can feel like we can feel whether we've been present or not present, you know, but we're present, we're here quietly, silence and stillness together. Um, so uh, another um, a thing, another thing that's that we can think of as shamanic is uh, trance states or non-ordinary states of consciousness, um, and we have that in Buddhism too. Trance states. In fact, the Buddha that was the first uh, when Buddha left home and sought wisdom. You know, of a of a ascetic what he came to was teachers who taught trance states and there are these eight trance states called the eight jhanas um, and he became an adept at the trance states but what he found was um, that when you come out of the trance you you have the same problems you had before um, and so he was like well what, what good is this you know and, you know, again, I, I don't feel like that's absolute because I do feel like you can have <laughs> some kinds of healing and transformation take place in non-ordinary states of mind. That can be a methodology that's viable. But for the Buddha, for what he is talking about, our core problem, which is, you know, our misunderstanding about how we exist, how the self exists, the trance is just like a little break from it. And then you're back to the same old thing. Um, and I'm going to read you a little bit of what um, I like this thing Buddha Dasa has to say about the jhanas. This might be more thought provoking. And, it, and he's making some other points here. I'll see. I don't know how much of this I'm going to read. We'll see. When we begin to meditate, there's a little samadhi, which is known as preliminary concentration. We start off by, for instance, for instance, focusing on our breathing so that a little samadhi gathers, which we then increase until access concentration, the gateway to the highest form of samadhi. Continuing from there, attainment concentration, that is jhana, is attained which represents the still silent mind, which can be further refined and deepened to the highest possible level, at which point even breathing will be absent. However, we can't really do much with such samadhi, although it is a lesson in mind's capacities. Maybe that's enough. So I like how he's talking about it. So basically what the Buddha found was that there's some kind of in between state between the usual concerns of our 
usual lives, survival and stuff, and trance. And that state is prime for insight. That is the state at which we can have insight. Insight into what we're up to. Um, and I have a theory or an idea that the way we do our practice, sort of daily, you know, short periods of zazen every day over a long time, maybe it like expands that space, you know what I mean? Makes it deeper and broader because what I kind of remember from my first days of sitting, I think it's actually easier to go into a trance when you first start sitting, maybe. Because, you know, I don't know if other people have that experience, but like a trance is kind of like you're kind of immobilized or you you um, have a different sense of time, various things happen, you know. I, I studied hypnotherapy, so I've been hypnotized, so I have a kind of a feeling for what a trance feels like. And I think it's easier at the beginning to go into it. And I think even from Western psychology, we might even think about that as dissociation or something. It may be easier to do that at first. But over time, with just mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of body, paying attention to what's happening, learning what we're up to with kindness and friendliness, holding ourselves, holding each other, kind of like the way the sanctuary is holding us, our mind is holding us in this broad perspective, this spacious, very spacious way. And um, that we can look around and see things differently and clearly, more clearly, hopefully. Um, I just wanted to interject here. I was listening. I had this wonderful interview with this writer, Mosul Hamid, who I didn't know anything about, but he, um, he said he's, he, he's Muslim. And he said, the question is not, um, the question is not, will I go to heaven? The question is, did I pray today? And I like that. The question for us is not, am I enlightened? Will I get enlightened? But did I, what did I do today? Did I stop this business for a few minutes? Did I touch something deeper? Just today, did I, did I you know? Um, oh God, not, something is not working. Um, you know, when we, after we sit in the morning, in the afternoon, what is our first, what is the first word that we all say together during service? Avalokiteshvara. Kokyo has another word they say, but when we all start together, our first word is Avalokiteshvara. And Avalokiteshvara means cry regarder. Some days we say kanji zai, but that's also Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara means cry regarder, kind of like synesthesia or something, you know, the cries are seen or maybe the cries are felt or it's, it's both the cries are seen and heard. It's not just one, it's all the senses involved. Um, 
And so right at the beginning, we're, we're remembering the cries of the world, right at the beginning of our first word when we start talking. Avalokiteshvara, when practicing deeply, perfection of wisdom, when practicing deeply, deep perfection of wisdom, I'm having a little senior moment about how it actually goes right now, um, which is, I think I'm proposing what I'm talking about, deep perfection of wisdom, hanging out, just hanging out in this been big mind, basically, hanging out big mind heart, you know. Avalokiteshvara, when hanging out in big mind heart, looked about and saw the five skandhas, looked about, listened for, felt around for the five skandhas, and saw that they were empty. Five skandhas. I mean, ideally, we've already unpacked, you know, so nor normal people normal normally we come to this practice, we have an idea of ourselves as this solid thing. Solid predictable has control. You know. And and we've already practicing Buddhism we've already dismantled that into the five skandhas right five skandhas are physical sensations, physical experience, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, skin, um, feelings, and then perceptions, or like, I like to think of it as like how we construct our world, um, impulses, which I've been thinking lately of as choices, actions and cho based on choices or choices and impulses and then consciousness. And some places even say that different people will fixate on one or the other of the five that they identify with as their self. So some of us identify with our body as ourself. Some of us identify with our feelings as the truth of who we are. You know, Some of us identify with our, how we make up our world. Some of us with our choices and some of us with just consciousness. Like I, I'm conscious, therefore I am. I mean, I don't know how much water that holds, but it's interesting to notice where you tend to think, <clears throat> where you feel that, where do you feel that tug that shows that you've got something, you know, some skin in the game there or something, you know, some, some, uh, what's the other phrase like that? Dog in this fight, you know, there's that, for me anyway, there's a certain feeling that tells me, oh, this is where I think myself is being threatened. This is where I, I must defend myself, you know, or I must obtain this for myself, you know. Um, lost my thread. So anyway, Avalokiteshvara, and practicing deep perfection of wisdom, looked about and saw the what did he look for the five skandhas which is just our our experience and saw that that was empty we've already unpacked self into these five but those are also empty those are just ideas this is you know so there's there's deeper there's deeper 
we we encourage us in our in our uh, in our sanctuary, in our being together in our sanctuary, we encourage each other to go deeper. And and deeper means you're not separated from, it's not like over there's all those things. The deeper is just the perspective on those things. The connecting with them, connecting with what's happening in a loving way, really, I think. Um, Let's see, there's, we can't see the clock on this now. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read one more quote from Zenju, and then I'm gonna be ready for convo. I hope other people read this book and enjoy it. It's quite thin, as opposed to this, which is quite thick and somewhat repetitive, to be honest. This is not at all repetitive and thin. <laughs> and written by a woman. Pardon me? And written by a woman. Yes. Yes, a woman. There aren't enough books written by Ultimately. In the Dharma. Ultimately, thanks, Mira. That's probably true. But there are, but if you look for them, you'll find them. And in fact, we have a special shelf in our library for women in Buddhism. So check it out. Ultimately, sanctuary is within. We walk spiritual paths by gathering ways of living that are in alignment with peace. Outer sanctuaries help us in doing so. When we are in a spiritual community, perfect or not, we see ourselves more clearly. We see the depth of our pain and rage while bowing or offering incense and flowers. We move so slowly that what is in our bodies cannot be overlooked. At first, we might feel self-conscious in a community that observes our human frailty. Over time, the ritual and ceremony take center stage and you begin to see another side of yourself, another side of life, despite being human. This side of life goes unseen in the rush of daily living. Creating sanctuary within requires the practice of stillness and silence provided in outer sanctuaries. When we get a glimpse of the unseen, we are brought back from where we emerged, be it the earth or the source of all life. So thank you very much. And um, I'm open to your thoughts and questions. Uh, hands, Peter and Alan, did you want to be the first? Because you're, <laughs> I'll let you be the first because you're the abbot, not because you're my husband. <laughs> you know, I have to think about that. <laughs> um, the piece that you just read from Zenju, uh, uh, really kind of clarified something. I think that uh, I also was really taken with the, the Islamic quote. Uh, what was the first part? If, uh, the question is not whether we're going to yeah, heaven, right, but whether we prayed pray. today. So I think that an, un, an unarticulated uh, piece that I hear in your talk, the trying to find the through line, is that 
uh, is the sense of duty, uh, the sense of uh, a kind of understanding that we have committed ourselves to doing certain things and we do them. And we do them within, we do we have certain things we do within this sanctuary and certain things, and of course we're always doing within the sanctuary of our body. And that that's it's a tricky I I notice my own complex feelings around the word duty, but also I think that it's it's really important and in, in various things I've been reading in different religious traditions, it seems very, uh, it seems almost universal. And that's what you see there. Did I pray today? You know, well, that's what I said I was going to do. That's my commitment, my practice. So I wonder how you think about that as a manifestation of what is it we're doing in the Zendo? Hmm. I have to say that I hadn't thought about that one single bit. The idea of duty and duty I think we would have to define it <clears throat> seems like first you would have to decide that something was very very beneficial first so first check this out is this beneficial and then you could decide this is so beneficial that this is what I want to do for my whole life then you've set an intention to that and and to the other people too. I, I want to help you. I want to I want us to do this together. I want us to wake up together. I want to help you create this sanctuary. And I want to devote my life to creating this sanctuary. So then I think for me, only then would duty yeah. come into I said I was going to do it, and so I will. And that I experience that sometimes. Like, I don't feel like coming, but I do because I said I would. I don't know if I'd use the word duty myself. I, I just, but... I'm just praising it. I think that Buddhadasi uses the word uh -huh. duty. I, and I just, you know, I think if I have to think, this is really off the top. Or not. You can. Oh, great. Thank um, goodness. I was just not. to say, and I, we don't have that big right. discussion here. What I what I'm talking about duty is not like some abstract thing. It's actually the manifestation of vow. Yeah. It's the actualization of vow. So you have to get, as you were saying, you have to get to the point of vow. Right, and you're using a word that has some connotation. So obviously you like that, um, like those, like bringing up those connotations. But I need to think about it some more because okay. I'm not resonating right now. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm going to call on Peter first, and then we've got three, uh, Kabir, Sandeep, and Ron in the online Zendo. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, thank you, Lori. Uh, I was just, uh, it caught my attention that he said at the beginning that he had to talk some comments about the, uh, whatever it is we're doing in Zoom land as a sanctuary. Mm. Yeah, so Peter's question is, what about um i made it sound i made it sound like i was going to address the the uh topic of how is this sanctuary created in zoom 
land or online and and I just thought I thought so much about what to say and I just didn't know what to say because first I thought well for people who've been to the zendo what when we first started this the online zendo for the people who had been used to being in the zendo it makes sense to me that we were able to you know map onto that map <laughs> map onto the online experience what we had experienced in person but actually number of people have come on zoom and it feels to me like they also are feeling what i'm talking about as far as i can tell so um it's very magical, really. It, it's magical, and it says something again about our human capacity, I think, and 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 also maybe how close, maybe how close this um, this deep mind, this big mind, how close big mind really is, you know. Um, so um, those are my thoughts, Peter. And I, I, I mean, it seemed, it just seemed like I, it kept getting away from me. I couldn't say, I couldn't think of anything definitive to say about it. And I didn't want to chuck out, well, we don't need, well, we don't need the Zendo, you know, I mean, so I didn't know what to say, but it's, it is a very good question. I will say that. Thank you. Okay, Kabir. Good morning, Lori. Thank good you for- morning. Thank you for your talk. Always hits the mark. Um, expecting thank you and appreciation. Um, when you were introduced today, uh, it was a quite a big list of things you do. And is it is it okay to expect um, some sort of a thank you or appreciation for something that you do that you spend a lot of time? And if you don't get that, what do you do with it? And where does that expectation comes from? I would, I, where I'm going with this, I don't know exactly if this is going to answer your question. I would say that it's always beneficial to express gratitude and appreciation. That, I mean, just for, for the person doing it, to get yourself into that situation where that's what you're feeling and expressing is like, I think that's extremely beneficial from my own experience. It turns every, it's just turning the whole thing around somehow, you know, turning it inside out to think about what's good already about this situation and who can I thank, you know, who can I appreciate? And that's behind our feeling towards the ancestors is this incredible gratitude. As far as expecting to be thanked, that seems dicey. That just seems really dicey. I just think, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend, that would not, for me, that wouldn't feel like a good place to, to spend any time, I don't think. Right, it is very sticky and, um, yeah. But we should, we should appreciate each other and we should sure. respect sure. each other and give each other respect and appreciation for sure. But, but don't go and trying to expect, even if, even if you save somebody's life, <laughs> A thank you from that person. Yeah, you you still say okay. Uh, what, what what do you do? I, I think it's also it's probably coming from the from the small self. It's it's sort of like I don't know. Maybe it's coming from the body. All the yeah. I don't know. But you just you know, one it. thing that 
it, it, another thing I'm going to here is like category where she used to say that the ego is like a doggy bag. Like <laughs> probably your initial impulse to do that thing, you know, that was beneficial what? that you want to get thanked for was very, could have been very pure, but the ego's like picking up on the leftovers. Like, just like in my gringo shock, it's like, well, it already happened. I gave it, it was whatever it was, it was what it was, you know, but the ego's like picking among the leftovers, trying to what? figure out if it can establish either good for me or bad for me. I mean, ideally it's going to lift me up, but if it doesn't, at least it can bring me down, like not leave me in this, like no, no man's land. Right, 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 yeah. right. All right. Okay. And Thank then and Sandeep. Thank you. Hi Sandeep. I don't think they can um, spotlight you if you don't show you. There you go. Uh, thank you, Laurie, for your talk. I really appreciated it. Um, I had a question. Uh, it's been kind of hard uh, with everything that's going on in the world to kind of sit in inner sanctuary um, without remembering what's going on uh, real time. Yeah. So my question is just, uh, if outer sanctuaries are not available, is inner sanctuary possible? I think it has to be. Yeah, I mean, if you look, oh, I'm sorry, repeat the question. If it, given everything that's going on in the world and where you might find yourself, I think this is probably what she's saying, is in, inner sanctuary possible if there is no outer sanctuary? And I have to say that it, history has proved it is. I mean, what popped in my mind was Nelson Mandela, you know. Um, it can be, it's it's a, it's possible, but we want to make it very possible. You know, like we have the outer sanctuary to encourage it even more. We don't want everybody to, we don't want to throw everybody in prison and see how many people can find an inner sanctuary there. You know what I mean? I mean, it would be an interesting exercise as Buddha says, but maybe not, <laughs> maybe not. But um, I think you, you you train in the sanctuary, right? You have to train somehow. So so the outer sanctuary helps you train in the sanctuary and other things, you know, that maybe if it's not available to you, walking in nature or whatever it is that does um, connect us, you know connect us and some people find I think just in the simple act of serving suffering beings they find that to be a way to connect to something deeper yeah thank you yeah I think that helps me move the light kind of so I feel part of the dynamic oh I didn't hear that myself oh, it helped you move um, the light I but... feel like I'm more connected when I'm serving others I think that landed for me mm -hmm. so it's not stagnate with the fire of what's going on it helps yeah move with right that. right because if, if we know too much it's it's all in our head you know yeah. <laughs> it's a lot to hold. but the immediate person right with you um is available to to connect with yeah thank, thank you. you okay ron uh, hi Lori. hi um, just going back to the word duty for a, uh, just a brief minute, um, I would use the word commitment yeah. and then 
we have a, some duty towards our own commitment. That feels more organic to me. But I think that commitment comes first and then um, sense of duty. I suppose you could be locked into some military duty that you don't feel really commitment to anymore. But you know, just in general everyday terms, uh, for myself, I find that commitment is the first thing and then some duty towards that commitment that I made in the first place. Yeah, we're, we keep inserting more. <laughs> I put like three things before the word duty. Now you've added another one. It's like we keep, we keep putting more words in between us and the word duty. I think that's a sign. I'm not sure of what, but. <laughs> and again, we have to define. It's just a word. It might mean something different to Alan than it does to me, for example, you know, and it might have different echoes of connotation. Uh, to me, there's a kind of almost a feminist reaction to it a little bit, like, Ugh. no, <laughs> duty, servants, they do their, you know, like just a whole bunch of weird stuff that's, that's stirred up in that, you know, but I'm not, I'm not saying never, uh, you know, we'll keep, keep chewing on it. But, you know, we have our commitment and we have our, um, we have what matters to us and, and we act, you know, we act to, we remember, you know, yeah, I kind of want to stay home and watch TV, but what really matters to me is connecting with something deeper. I got to remember that that's what really matters. And that's where my commitment is going to come from. Maybe. Okay. Let's do Susan and then we'll do Barbara Joan. Um, thank you, Lori. So I was just wondering if like underneath duty and commitment, <laughs> duty and commitment can also create busyness. Kind of like if you line up a lot of duties and commitments. Yeah. So you kept talking about going deeper. So what about underneath those? Um, flexibility and openness to what might come along and interrupt one of those. So I have this little example last week, um, Preston and I were out in the park in Berkeley, handing out sandwiches and we gave a sandwich to this man and he was grateful. And then he said, could I play you a little song on my lap harp? And we said, sure. And so then he played this rather long piece on his harp and it was lovely. And we said, thank you so much. And he looked at us and he said, thank you so much for the sandwich, but for not walking right by me. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a homeless person that had that experience probably a million times, right? And it really stopped me. It's like an image that's kind of lasted all week. You know, it kind of interrupted our. So you could have thought in a, in a certain frame, your duty or your your commitment was to give out these sandwiches. But really, I know the way you've talked about it. I mean, the commitment is really to connect with people. Well, it is. But all, my point is that busyness, even when you have a good, you know, an intentional, a positive commitment can get in the way of of being open to something that, you know, you might have decided your commitment is going to take 30 minutes mm -hmm. and then your next commitment is coming a half hour later. 
So the so commitment asking, almost like has blinders or something. Well, I'm just asking yeah. you about your experience. If you think that sounds even plausible, oh, sure. underneath all that, we're trying to express flexibility. Yeah. I mean, we're, yeah, flexibility to remember i mean what i would say is flexibility to remember the real intention so you know if you'd gotten distracted by the giving out of the sandwiches that would have distracted you from your you had the flexibility to remember you know your real intention is to connect with people here and so i don't know it sounds like you're saying flexibility is the bottom thing and i'm not sure about that because i think it does have to do with our I mean, I don't know. It's just it's again words, but it does have to do with our what matters to us. Yeah, I guess I was asking. And maybe what matters to you most is flexibility, and that's fine if that's what it is. Uh, let's see. How much time do we have, Susan? Because there's two I people. Could take one more. Okay, there's two people online and one in the room. Oh, somebody stepped it's down. Nineteen hours, okay. so it's up to you. Oh, okay. Get one more. Uh, I'm going to do Barbara because I can talk to Hannah myself person privately. Okay, Barbara, go ahead. And thank you, Hannah, for seating the <laughs> space. Um, I, so thank you for your talk. So many of the, the things you said struck, resonated, struck and resonated. Um, I really appreciated the, the definition of shaman, and I actually think it speaks to many of the questions in, in the story of the person playing the lab part made me mm. tear up, so my voice is particularly shaky. Mm. Um, and part of what it made me think was the unseen world, the nature, this to know the spirit of things, the nature of the unseen world. And music is, is a perfect example mm. of the unseen world. And maybe that the duty, I, I thought of the word responsibility because, uh, because that's where it strikes me. And, mm -hmm. and I think that um, the responsibility of Avalokiteshvara is the cries of the world, and that is the unseen world. We can't see the world crying, but we feel it. And I think this ability to link into the, the Zoom verse, into the here and now, also speaks to a kind of uh, question that in the poetics that I'm studying and thinking about has to do with what's here. What's here and because I'm here and so are you, You're, you would say I am here. And so here is, is actually everywhere. And, um, and to me, the word sanctuary is really important. I, I call my art space, my salon sanctuary and have since it's been building and built and, and going, having that be a deeper place inside is a challenge and a responsibility. 
So um, I don't know if this has. I, I'm going to have a really hard time encompassing what you said for everybody. Sorry about that. <laughs> something about responsibility. I mean, so I, I think it's really a good thing that we're we're looking for these words, you know. And I think it's it's. Um, I'm not going to address exactly what you said, Barbara. Sorry, but that was great. <laughs> I think that we have this idea that the word is going to get us to the thing, but actually the word comes between. And I think that's a really elemental confusion we have. Find the right word and I touch the thing. No, you don't. It gets in between. It gets in between. So I think it's really good that we're throwing out all these words because in a way it's saying that, that there isn't a word that gets right on it. And that's good. So we don't have to find it. Thank you all so much. Um, and thank you out there so much. Thanks to my sister who hopped on. She's got she's got internet now, so she can join the talk. Um, and uh, let's do the chant, right? That's the next thing. Being so I Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Oh.